0: I'm Kayla Benjamin, Internet Lawfare, with an episode of Rational Security for October 15th, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled the Israel and Hamas at War edition. In this episode, Alan, Quinta, and Scott sat down with Benjamin Wittes for a serious conversation about Hamas' attacks in Israel. Israel's military response, and what it might mean for the rest of the world. This is Rational Security.
2: Hey folks, welcome to Rational Security. This is, as folks who listen to us regularly know, usually a pretty lighthearted podcast, even though we talk about fairly serious topics. But this week we are talking about a particularly serious topic, uh, and that is the horrible set of terrorist attacks that has happened in Israel and what is coming uh, in their aftermath. And for that reason, we didn't feel comfortable doing our usual banter reopening. Uh, we're going to get right into what is going to be a, a much more substantive and serious conversation. We will be back to the levity next week. Uh, but until then, we have a lot to say and a lot of thoughts about this topic and what current events may mean for the national security realm more broadly. Um, so I hope you'll join us for that conversation. Thanks. <laughs> hello everyone and welcome back to rational security i am one of your co-hosts scott r anderson here back in the studio with one of my other co-hosts quinta jurassic
3: hello
2: and in the virtual studio with our third co-host alan rosenstein hello and we are joined by co-host emeritus lawfare editor-in-chief benjamin wittes ben thank you for coming back on the podcast today
0: always a pleasure.
2: So as I mentioned in the uh, introductory comment uh, in advance of this episode, uh, we are usually – well, we're usually a lighthearted podcast uh, that tries to talk about serious topics with a little bit of levity. This week we are going to spend this entire episode talking about one very serious topic uh, about which there isn't a lot of lightheartedness to say the least. uh, And that is the horrible set of terrorist attacks that took place this past week in Israel uh, and the military and political fallout that is coming from that including Israeli military operations underway in Gaza uh, and potentially other parts of the region and country as we speak. It's a serious topic, but a very important one. Um, We've done this once before here on Rational Security when Russia invaded Ukraine. We committed that episode to that topic entirely precisely because I think we all anticipated that it was going to be a game changer. It was a sign that the national security terrain was changing. uh, The law and policy terrain was changing in a way that we were going to talk about for the next several months, if not years. and, And that's proven correct And I think this story is very much along the same lines. Um, This is a pivot point, a breaking point, a, a major, major development that's going to change how a lot of things operate in the Middle East and in other parts of the world. It has ramifications for everyone in a lot of ways. So we're going to commit this whole episode to talking about this topic and a couple aspects of it. We're going to start by talking about the experiences of Israelis and Palestinians and what the attack and what comes after the attack is going to mean most directly for them at the most local level and at the level of kind of national and near regional politics. We're then gonna step back and talk about what it means for the broader world, uh, where we're gonna talk about Russia and Iran and all the other actors that are involved in the United States to some degree. And then third, we're gonna talk about what it means for the United States and the Biden administration in particular, um, because of course, U.S. relationship with Israel and the fact that we have American nationals among those being killed and among those being held hostage by Hamas makes it a a story that really directly impacts U.S. national security and politics in a way that few other stories do. Um, So that's the game plan today. Uh, It's going to be a serious episode, a serious conversation. We will get back to the levity uh, and some of the chatter uh, next week. But for now, we hope you'll stick with us as we talk about this serious topic because it is something that we need to give some serious thought to because it's going to be with us for a very long time and again, it's going to have ramifications for a lot of us and a lot of our lives in a lot of different ways, uh, which we can start thinking about now. For the first part of our topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to frame a little bit our conversation about the kind of most local and national effects in Israel in Palestinian territories and where we think things might, have ha- might be going there.
4: So at this point, I'm looking at the uh, English language live blog on Haaretz, which I recommend to anyone who's trying to follow this and like me doesn't speak any Hebrew or Arabic. Um, So according to Haaretz, at least uh, 1,200 Israelis have been killed. uh, 2,400 have been wounded. Uh, The Palestinians say that 950 Palestinians have been killed and 5,000 wounded in Israeli airstrikes. Um, So the numbers are high. They're getting worse as more information comes in, um, about the events of the weekend. And I imagine they will only climb higher and higher, um, particularly on the Palestinian side, whenever the IDF begins, whatever kind of operation it is planning against Hamas, presumably in Gaza. So there are a lot of different angles here, but maybe just to start Ben, if you could kind of give us an overview of where things stand politically in Israel right now. What is what is happening? Do we have a sense of what the government is doing? Um, do we have a sense of what the military is planning?
0: Yeah. So just a, a, two quick notes on the body counts before we do that the first is that uh left out of the palestinian numbers but i think worth mentioning is 1300 apparently palestinian uh hamas militant bodies who have been uh discovered on the israeli side of the border so uh that's a you know the, the the number is actually significantly higher than you're getting from the Palestinian Health Ministry. Uh, the second thing is to emphasize that we do not know the distribution of civilian versus military casualties on either the Palestinian or Israeli sides. We know that the Palestinian the the Israeli casualties are overwhelmingly civilian, but there have been, a number of a significant number of idf military casualties as well so uh we don't know what that ratio looks like and uh, and of course the palestinian health ministry doesn't distinguish between um military and civilian casualties so when you hear a number like 950 or whatever they're uh, putting out about uh palestinian casualties it's very hard to know whether that reflects terrible IDF targeting or excellent IDF targeting. And so just keep in mind that these numbers are – there's the raw numbers themselves assuming that they're accurate and then there's the interpretive exercise of figuring out what they mean which can be extremely difficult. Um, The situation in Israel roughly speaking is the following. uh, There appears to be now – An emergency national unity government at least involving uh, uh, the de facto principal opposition leader, which is Benny Gantz. He's not formally the head of the opposition, but he's probably Netanyahu's biggest rival for power. He has entered the government uh, on – for an emergency – purpose. This does not reflect a realignment of Israeli politics. It just reflects a a sort of national unity to get through the crisis. Uh, The Israeli operation has, you know, long since begun from an air perspective. Everybody is expecting a major ground operation. That has not begun. And so I think you can say phase one – is well underway and what can we infer from phase one? Number one is that the uh, the most important thing I think is that a lot of the old rules uh, have been uh, thrown out and the Israeli – the IDF has long had a very, very difficult problem in operating in Gaza which is that … The legitimate targets are deeply embedded inside civilian architecture, civilian buildings. They live with large families. Um, and so uh, traditionally, the IDF has taken a view of, you know, what constitutes proportionality, that is, I would say in some ways more aggressive, in some ways less aggressive than the United States view in close or urban combat but is roughly speaking similar in many respects. The attacks over the last few days have reflected a different style which is that they are not warning specific buildings, hey, we're going to hit this in a minute, Uh, get out. They're warning general areas and then they're attacking those areas. So um, they clearly have amped up uh, a lot of uh, aggressiveness dials. They're clearly have made some judgment that, you know, things that were not proportional a week ago in light of what has happened and to prevent further Such incidents, uh, things are now okay that were not okay then. That means you are going to have a lot more civilian casualties than in prior Israeli operations. Uh, And then finally, just to round out the overview, there is. Uh, increasing activity on the Lebanese border um, both from the Israeli side and from Hezbollah and uh, whether that is uh, exchanges of fire for purposes of symbolic uh, affiliation with Hamas or whether this is the opening of a major front on the Lebanese side remains to be seen. I will remind listeners that Hezbollah is the single most capable fighting force in, other than the IDF, and it actually has some capabilities that the IDF doesn't have in the entire region. And you know, a, a, a serious full fight with Hezbollah, which has not happened in a long time, is uh, a a major major undertaking from the IDF's point of view. Something they will do a lot to avoid, but, you know, you may end up seeing a major two-front war here.
2: Yeah, and it's worth noting there are some reports just as we're recording about a wave of activity on – in northern Israel, a lot of air alerts, um, the reports which are not substantiated yet and so I don't think we should take them too seriously. There has been a ton of misinformation from all fronts uh, facilitated by um, the general disaster that Twitter has become. Uh, in this case, but but it's worth noting right now that that's a possibility. People are noting there's also reports that the U.S. is evacuating the embassy in Beirut, um, which I imagine would be a likely outcome. There is this kind of intractable logic about what is going to come that's entirely predictable. Ben made this point, I think, really aptly in some writing he did on it for Lawfare. Um, and it's a, it's unavoidable um, because of the logic that both of these actors have come into this with, which is that Israel is going to respond in a dramatic way that we we'll be have Major consequences for civilians, uh, and in a way that is going to push the envelope. Israel's operations already push an envelope that a lot of people in the world are uncomfortable with. Americans aren't as uncomfortable as many, but they are uncomfortable with it in the end. uh, In a lot of cases, Um, and that has been a point of tension, and in some ways, increasing tension as the broader political dynamics around the U.S.-Israel relationship has become more difficult. Right now, you're going to get a a lot more leeway from the United States for other powers around that, but it's not clear how far that runs. And it's there's a strong element with Twitch from my perspective. It can be pretty self defeating for Israel if it pushes the envelope too hard. Um, although for, for domestic audiences reasons, I, I think that's less true, and that's probably a reason why it's it might proceed in spite of international consequences. Um, you know, hitting too hard against Palestinian civilians uh, or doing things that compromise Palestinian civilians too much is a thing that is going to undermine the amount of. Uh, goodwill isn't quite what I'm looking for, but the amount of uh, acceptance of the necessity of a military response and the marginalization of Hamas that is coming and could be furthered even out of this. I mean, even Arab governments that usually feel a strong need to speak out in support of Palestinians have been very awkward about this. Palestinian Authority has been very awkward and treaded a very careful line, really stopped short of any sort of endorsement of this sort of action. We haven't seen a lot of people in the West Bank take up arms, or begin to do things that they very well might, and they have done in prior cases, you think a few years ago to the mass protests on the border of Gaza, uh, the Israeli military response and some reactions that triggered around the world. We haven't seen that in this case yet. And I think, you know, this could be, the response could be managed in a way where if you are able to frame things in a way that's proportional and acceptable, maybe you can curb that. And you can say, well, Hamas really has done something beyond the pale here. This response is, is appropriate. But that's a it's a hard line to walk, and it's not one that's consistent with how Israelis have approached that or have said they're going to approach it. This case, and I think there's a good chance that despite this moment of uh, you know relative unity slash uh, at least tacit quiet around uh, what Hamas has done, and the fact that even in the region people aren't don't seem very you know enthusiastic about it, think it's a real problem even among traditional supporters of Palestinians. That goes away if the Israeli response ends up killing thousands, or you know. Maybe more Palestinian civilians in Gaza puts them in an even more inhumane situation than they've been living before, and then we're back to the situation of Israel doing what it feels it needs to do militarily, but on an island, an island that it's kind of half joined by the United States, uh, and probably will be substantially through this. But you know, European statements of support, things like that, that only goes so far um, if you really, really hit uh, and don't think about the civilian calculus as carefully as you need to in these situations, and. I'm not sure the Israelis seem poised to do that as of yet, despite – it's worth noting – express statements by President Biden uh, and other people in the last 24, 48 hours have been reported saying we have to be careful about civilian casualties in these response.
3: I mean all of that is right, but I guess I just don't understand how Israel could prosecute this war with any lesser ambitions than to destroy Hamas entirely in Gaza. I mean, the whole theory of Israeli-Gaza security policy over the last 15 years, and we haven't even talked about the catastrophic intelligence failure that I think will go down as one of the greatest in literally all of human history um, when you think about the resources that Israel was putting towards intelligence in Gaza. In the last 15 years of Israeli-Gaza management was this theory of you know mowing the grass, the, which is not a, you know, charming euphemism, right? That every once in a while you would go, you would bomb some buildings, you'd kill some Hamas leaders, you would just keep them contained. And I think if anything, this shows that that cannot be a viable strategy and that Hamas is, I mean, an ISIS level death cult, frankly. And I just don't understand when faced with that kind of entity, how, any self-respecting sovereign could decide that anything short of complete elimination of Hamas right not of Gaza not of the Palestinians but specifically of Hamas is anything short of that would be would be appropriate
4: can i can i just sort of frame a couple questions here because i think it's worth pulling apart a few different things so one I do want to make sure that we talk about the intelligence failure. I think that's really, really crucial. The New York Times had some just astonishing reporting about the multiple levels of failure that happened um, that allowed this to take place. And not only, you know, not only allowed it to, you know, for Hamas to go through a literally a billion dollar fence um, with a bulldozer, but then meant that the IDF didn't so show much up for
3: building the wall. Yeah, right.
4: Uh, that meant that the IDF didn't show up in these kibbutzes and along the border um, for for hours in some cases. Um, so that's that's one aspect. I think that a sub aspect of that has to do with the failure of the mowing the grass strategy, which I agree I find that term kind of distasteful. But um, Dan Byman wrote a piece for Lawfare that points out, you know, part of the intelligence failure has to do with the Israeli assessment of Hamas. I don't think, I mean, Scott, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, before Saturday, I would not have described Hamas as a death cult, right? I would have described it as a far-right, Islamist, violent organiza- violent terrorist organization that was in a sort of weird position of governing Gaza, that which created strange situations, but that I don't my impression, at least, was that the Israeli government did not understand it as ISIS level. And so I think there is a a change in how we need to think about what Hamas is doing there as well. And then the third aspect, which I wanted to also sort of pull out, Alan, from what you were saying, is that the circumstances in Gaza, which is one of the most densely populated places in the world, Um, I've seen some conflicting reports about whether or not the Rafah border crossing into Egypt is open or closed to allow people to get out. But it's such that getting rid of Hamas, whatever that means, is actually extraordinarily difficult to do, if not impossible, without just an astonishing amount of civilian casualties, even keeping in mind uh, proportionality concerns. And so I think that's another aspect. So those are kind of the three different ways to, to frame the different questions here. Ben Scott, I'm curious what you think.
0: Yeah, so I mean as to Hamas being a death cult, it's always had a a bit of a death cult in it. It is the it is not the inventor of the suicide bombing. That that goes to LTTE and Hezbollah, but it is the popularizer and miniaturizer of the suicide bombing, the idea that you put a suicide vest on an individual and go blow up a bus and uh you know that's that's pretty death culty and they stopped the oslo process using that as a strategy and so that's a um on the other hand they have never conducted an operation before that was done with the full knowledge that they were going to bring about in response the You know, cataclysmic destruction of Gaza, which is what this operation has done. And so I do think it reflects a change in ambition and and strategy by Hamas of in one way or another. As to the, the question of intelligence failure, it's important to separate. There are many intelligence failures here, as you describe. There's also a perimeter security failure and that's separate from intelligence actually the the so people who've never spent time in that part of israel don't instinctively understand the extremity of the proximity here sterot the town that is closest to the uh gaza wall in the the significant city anyway down the downtown of it is less than a mile from Inside the wall. So if you break through that wall, you are inside Sderot. Some of the kibbutzim, uh, including one that I I know that Quinta has been to, I think Scott has been as well, literally goes up to the wall, and you know there's a, a there are murals on that wall made of pottery uh, and painted by people who live at that kibbutz. Um, And, uh, you know, so the, 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 the degree to which the perimeter security has to be near perfect to prevent a massacre, to prevent death is pretty extreme, actually. And the, uh, the idea that you could just take a bulldozer and go through that fencing and it takes a long time for guys with guns to show up. That is a shocking, shocking failure, independent of the intelligence failure. Uh, finally, you know, Hamas is impossible to eradicate. That is a fantasy. Um, Hamas developed under Israeli occupation. It predates the Oslo process. It, you know, it was founded in eighty six or eighty seven. I think it is. Uh, It was capable of conducting violence under Israeli occupation and if it is forced entirely – you can force it underground. But the Israeli occupation was never capable of squelching violence. It was never capable of preventing the emergence of Hamas and so the idea that there's any military operation that can eradicate Hamas is just fantastical the goal the 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 most plausible maximalist goal unless you're explicitly contemplating war crimes is the removal of Hamas as a governing or open you know the the, the destruction of Hamas as a militia, the destruction of Hamas as a governing entity that is itself going to be difficult but the idea that's circulating in, is, you know, on social media that you can destroy Hamas is just a fantasy.
2: And I really think it underscores just a – and that this event really shatters the illusion of the overall success of Israeli strategy in this for the last several decades, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank potentially as well. I mean the Israeli overall security formula, uh, particularly since they've First tacitly and now pretty expressly moved away from a two-state solution being something that's actual progress moving towards is the idea that we can cabin any sort of threat the Palestinians can pose to us from Gaza or from the West Bank through security measures, through repression – through a degree of economic cooptation um, by essentially providing economic compromises, some degree of self-governance, although we've seen that really constrained substantially in both contexts, really, in different ways, um, but some degree of self-governance, and we'll hit some formula where there's always going to be a threat from the Palestinians, but we can set up strong enough barriers, strong enough defenses where they can't actually affect us at a scale that is such a big concern, um, and that we can maintain the status quo. And, and worth noting, in the West Bank, under... The last few governments in particular not only maintain the status quo but advance it and complicate it and put Israeli settlers with contentious claims in closer and closer proximity to Palestinians, many of whom have I think what a lot of people in the national community view as very legitimate grievances for how their property has been treated, how they've been treated uh, and who do not have a full allotment of political rights certainly by any stretch of the imagination um, and for whom there's no plan in really providing them. Um, This really shatters that. Because it's saying, look, you can't cultivate pockets of people who are hostile to you and to who feel like you are mistreating them and oppressing them and you know, not expect that there's some sort of – they're going to be a basis for some sort of threat and you can't be on guard 100 percent of the time even if you're as effective as the Israeli military is. and It particularly, frankly, compromises I think and in hindsight is going to complicate the West Bank strategy of this particular government. Because a big reason the Gaza was unattended was because such a huge force commitment was required in the West Bank to advance the political agenda there. That's a problem. Now maybe you can do it by mobilizing bigger army, getting more Israeli conscripts, or conscripts and listees, you know, getting there's other ways maybe you can address that, but fundamentally you're moving much closer to a police state, to a, you know, ever-present military operation than I think a lot of Israelis want to. And Israeli military service is its own kind of complicated concept in domestic politics there. So I think this you're right, Alan, like this is not a success, like the, it's not clear how you reconcile these things of destroying Hamas, severely compromising Hamas and then not occupying or accepting the cost of occupation. It, it It's just this formula I don't think holds together in the long run um, and this really shatters that illusion. Now, does that mean the Israelis are going to go to a system where maybe they say, okay, we have to find a solution Palestinians are happier with? In the long run, that's not going to be a conversation anytime soon. But maybe yeah, a year don't, from don't now. Yeah, don't hold
0: your breath for that in the short. term. Not in the
2: short term, certainly. But in the long, you know, critical arc. will thats that is that that'll come out of this. Maybe the alternative is well, then really maybe we need to stop operating under the skies that we're doing anything other than oppressing these people. Uh, and then the counter pressure of that is well, can Israel Israel really truly live in a as a state that a lot of the international community? Thinks is doing bad things and is increasingly not willing to engage with on the same level, uh, and you know it means pushing up against limits. The United States is not comfortable with that's been very clear, particularly under Democratic administrations, expressing the Democratic Party's platform. As a as a state has moved away from the two state solution, but there's a broader you know public opinion element about going too far here. So Israel is in a really difficult position um, about how they pivot away from this, and and that in the medium to long term is going to be a big conversation. This is going to drive that's that shattered misconceptions about on the Hamas point I do want to make one point here we really have to seriously consider that Hamas miscalculated in doing this and not miscalculated that they did not anticipate actually being successful in this operation that they established catastrophic success precisely because Hamas's you know past operations have also have often been a psychological impact and they have had limited some success but not categoric success, right? And so if they're really trying to send a strong message to Israel, but they don't expect a high level of success, what do you do? You throw tons of troops at it. You have really grandiose, horrific, horrifying goals. And you kind of throw your all into it, knowing that it may fail. But the idea that you had even some marginal success means that uh, you're going to send a political message. But then you succeed. And you end up doing things that It triggers such a strong reaction. It's going to come back on you so much harder. Um, There's a fascinating interview that a a Hamas political leader uh, who's based in Doha gave with um, The Economist. That was in their podcast this morning. I highly recommend listening to it. Where This guy could not reconcile or explain why Hamas did what it did. Really could not. Could not even acknowledge it. Wasn't unwilling to acknowledge that they were involved in killing civilians deliberately at all. And then could not describe how doing anything like what actually happened – advances Hamas's global strategy or its interests. And I think that's something Hamas is really reconciling with. Maybe this is, you know, the political leaders being divided from the military leaders. That happens in these groups. The military leaders have the real power and maybe they thought this was important and didn't bring political leaders in on it. It was not clear what their strategic goal was either. I, th- I think Hamas, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ruining the idiom here, but, you know, the dog caught the car on this one. And that's a real serious possibility that I think needs to enter into our strategic calculus. Like It's not clear, even though this was such a well-planned operation, Hamas 100% intended for it to be successful or thought it would in evaluating a strategic calculus. If it thought it was only going to be 10% successful, like a lot of prior operations, then this begins to make some more sense, as horrific as that still would be, some more sense in Hamas's broader strategic calculus.
3: So we keep talking about this issue of proportionality, and I want to just address it directly. And Scott, you're our international law expert. So here's what the thing I don't understand, right? When prosecuting a conflict, the, the two general principles are necessity and proportionality. That, that's how you deal with the question of what civilian casualties are and are, not, and are not acceptable under international law. What I don't understand is how that changes when you are dealing with, again, a genocidal death cult that, as you have discovered, you cannot trust and you cannot assume will just sit quietly after you've mown the grass. What does proportionality mean in this context? Or does it not mean anything? Or is this just like not, this is international law is just not particularly equipped to to handle this, right? I mean, you have a situation in which you have a group that comes and viciously slaughters, mutilates, and you know sexually assaults your citizens, and then goes back into their territory and hides among civilians. What does proportionality allow at that point? It's just not clear to me even how to think about this question.
2: So it's a hard question, but it's not an unprecedented question. Like this is actually a fundamental issue that the you know people who author the law of armed conflict and that the customary international law kind of reflects and tries to codify has dealt with in the past, um, although perhaps not quite at the scale. Right, and the the basic formula to oversimplify things dramatically is the idea that. You have to have a military necessary reason to do something and then you have to make sure that the military advantage provided is proportional to the harm to civilians uh, that it incurs. And then you need to distinguish between military and civilian targets. That's the principle of humanity. And there are other factors that enter in here. I'm simplifying things a little bit.
0: Yeah, so Scott's point is exactly right, but Alan's question still stands, right? Because one way to to look at it – is to say you're looking at the immediate objective, right? The immediate military objective which is to target this Hamas commander, right? And there is are 15 civilians in his immediate vicinity and you would say is uh, 15 civilian deaths in order to get one guy proportional? Probably not. Maybe you got to wait till some of them go to the bathroom or you have to do a tap on the roof strike, right? But then – but if you zoom out and you say, is it proportional when you've just suffered 1,200 civilian casualties and you're trying to prevent a repeat of that, you might analyze it differently. And so I think the I, – I think, I think the framework is exactly as you describe. And Alan's point that this kind of blows up the no pun intended blows up the framework a little bit is again not unprecedented. We you know nine eleven was similar in that regard, but you you may have a a very different sense of urgency that may have a, a a completely that may really affect your proportionality analysis, and that I think is exactly what's happening right now, which is that. You know, strikes that the Israelis didn't used to regard as proportional are in this context regarded as proportional. And so, I think I, I actually agree with both of you that it's a that it's a it's a deep challenge, and there is a framework for thinking about it, however imprecise.
3: And to Ben's point about nine eleven, which I think is an interesting example, right? After 9-11, we invaded Afghanistan to destroy a government that was harboring al-Qaeda. And this set a chain of events over the next 20 years that caused a remarkable amount of civilian misery. Was that unproportional? Uh, This is a real question, right? I, I, I mean, presumably, some people think it was, some people think it wasn't. But I guess that's the level at which we're talking about, right? And of course, the civilian deaths in Israel are actually, if you adjust it for population, several orders of magnitude, or at least one order of magnitude greater than what happened on 9-11. That, that, that's that's the question I have. It's, a, it's an open question. I really don't know.
2: So I'm going to break it down for you the best I can, because I don't think you're actually framing this question quite right. And I think that's essential here. Military necessity isn't about retribution or revenge, right? It's about advancing a military objective. So if you're saying We have reason to think that somebody in a given building is about to launch potentially fatal rockets on our people. That's high level of military necessity and you don't have any other alternative way of addressing that military necessity. Then maybe you have what a lot of people say, well, strong case saying, well, that that necessity strongly outweighs the uh, potential civilian cost even if it's a building full of civilians and we have to take it out, right? I think that's a pretty horrible decision to have to make in a horrible scale but there's an argument there. It becomes different if it's a you know there's no direct immediate military threat, right? Are you targeting the leader of an organization? Well, do you have other opportunities to target the leader of that organization? Can you wait as Ben noted? Also, what does the leader of that organization actually do is it is what they do so directly related to a threat to you that it warrants whatever the civilian cost is? These are the calculations that go into individual military actions, you know, generalizing at the level of an overall Kind of conflict, I, I think, is presents a very different
3: formula that that this doesn't apply to, um, and I don't think it's useful. Um, but, wait, but, but 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 why isn't it useful? That that's that's the, that that's the question. And and again, right? Like, I'm not an international law person,
2: Alan. You, you ha- you're actually talking about the actions that kill people, right? Like, these are the operational decisions, right? But, but, so but the but decision to invade Afghanistan is a different one from the individual military operation that went in. Some of which very well, many people would argue, were disproportional, right? Um, or might have been. The The key point here is that you're in a formula where it requires a lot of judgment calls, a lot of subjective assessments. And people are going to say, OK, well, what is your conception of military necessity here? And there's no impartial judge that does these things. There are actually Israeli legal lawyers yeah, more involved. Uh, and they actually have resort to the Israeli judicial system in a way a lot of countries don't. So there is a legalization of this more in Israel than a lot of people appreciate and more than a lot of other countries, including the United States. But you're weighing all these different factors. But you know, the overall fact that you've just suffered a horrible attack psychologically weighs into how people weigh these things. I have no doubt. Is it part of the formula? Is it something that's supposed to weigh in? It's not, except if you think you're saying there's such a risk of repeat or risk of
0: military interest, yeah, and how this relates to Th- it. that that's that's the key thing. It's not you've just suffered this attack. It's you've just suffered this attack, and there's another one. And you are acting to prevent another one. And that means that everything is more urgent. Military necessity is amped up in all situations. And your sense of what proportional collateral, uh, lawful collateral damage is, is much greater because military necessity is much higher. And your sense of the imminence of the risk is higher. And so it's a I, – I think it, it does pervasively affect everything. And I think you're seeing that not for vengeance reasons, although I'm sure that there's lots of that psychologically going on too. But because I think the, the proportionality analysis and the military necessity analysis has just completely changed.
3: This is the thing that I'm trying to understand, which is – presumably the individual targeting decisions are going to be downstream from how one addresses the overall strategic objective, right? And if one addresses the overall strategic objective as Hamas presents an existential or near existential or just totally intolerable threat, it must be destroyed. We will do our best to limit civilian casualties, right? But based on Hamas's actions, the resulting number will still be extremely high Does international law have anything to say about whether or not the decision to go to war against Hamas rather than to mow the grass and do it every five years? Does international law have anything to say about that question? Right? In the same way that, like, did international law have anything to say uh, when the United States decided that Al-Qaeda is intolerable and any regime that harbors it is intolerable? And that allows us to remove that regime subject once we have a you know conditional on that subject at that point to the calculations of proportionality and necessity but that the aims were fundamentally just because if because because it seems to me that like if if international law and maybe it just doesn't and that's just not its job doesn't have a lot to say about that like that that creates a you know we're all going to be talking about this micro these micro questions of course super important you know, which building do you bomb which building do you not bomb but without addressing like the actual question right which is is it appropriate for Israel to decide that it must now engage in a war against Hamas, whose outcome must be its essential destruction.
0: Yeah, but I think you've just described the three basic analytical camps in who is psychologically in thinking about this. Camp one says what Hamas did is intolerable. You're gonna go in, you're gonna deal with it, and the chips are gonna fall where they may with a lot of people and you know that's tragic, but fuck it, you got to do it. Camp Two says, and and some of them admit that they're saying this, and some of them don't. Which is, Israel's struggle against Hamas is illegitimate, and Hamas is is struggle against Israel is legitimate, and therefore Israel has no right of self defense, uh, and therefore we should basically take a. Uh, you know, a strict liability position against any civilian death and uh, that results. And then camp three, which Scott uh, and I are at sort of both in but in kind of pushing different ends of, I think, are, yes, it's legitimate. It's going to happen and it's going to be ugly, but there are still rules, and the, the the rules don't go away entirely. And then you're arguing about how the rules don't go away entirely, and what the and how much how much air can be put in the balloon, and
3: how much can't. And and if the rules mean that Hamas, then it will continue in some form. That's just what the rules mean. Like that. That's the implication of that framework. Again, I'm I'm just trying to understand these three different options, trying to wrap my head around them. Right. And that may be what the framework requires.
2: I mean, just to be clear, the the use in bellow framework, the the law for evaluating war is independent of the legitimacy of the aims quite deliberately. Because every state thinks they have completely legitimate aims. Many of them will describe it as existential and therefore say, well, this justifies anything because it's so important. And the whole reason we have rules that say we can't think of things that way, we have to weigh things in regards to human life having value no matter the broader political aims is because it's too much of a slippery slope otherwise. Now military necessity sneaks a lot of this back in, the way people think about it because it depends We'll weigh how big is the threat? What does deterrent mean? Uh, it becomes this vehicle we sneak this in and that's why it is constantly the point of tension between military operators and human rights activists uh, and in this case between a lot of Israeli military operations and people who are critical of Israeli military operations on this basis. This horrible attack in theory should not actually impact that calculus, right? Except insofar as Ben Loaded that you think this is a big threat of repeat here. The argument here is different though. I mean this is not a case where Israel was suddenly attacked by, uh, you know, a major state with all these capabilities. This is an entity that Israel thought itself up until four days ago. It had cabined pretty effectively and by all accounts kind of had – It had this catastrophic success moment. So I just don't think, you know, if you are thinking this through the framework of saying Hamas has to be destroyed and that warrants everything and this attack says it's an existential threat. I have no doubt a lot of Israelis in good faith believe that right now. That's going to be a hard – a very dangerous framework to approach this conflict from. Because it's not going to be the way a lot of the rest of the world is going to see it. And it's going to reach really different operational conclusions about what's permitted and what's not. That is going to be really hard for the rest of the world to swallow, even those who might otherwise be inclined to side with Israel. That's a real danger here for Israel, I think. And And I'm worried from some of the rhetoric you're hearing from the military leadership that it's one they're at risk of slipping into.
3: So it's probably worth now zooming out a little bit and considering this conflict in its somewhat broader geopolitical context there's been a lot of speculation over the last few days of what Hamas's strategic goal was to the extent that it was one and one often bandied about idea is that Hamas chose this moment to attack because it is trying to undermine the in progress Israel Saudi Arabia normalization deal and again this comes in the context of what are called the Abraham Accords a set of bilateral, again, kind of normalization agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and uh, Bahrain. And the idea here is that, you know, the attack, and in particular the inevitable Israeli counterattack, would make it impossible for Saudi Arabia to normalize relations um, given its general position as sort of defender of Islam, right, given just its historical importance and where many of Islam's holy sites are. Now, as to why Hamas would have cared so much. Um, Of course, Hamas has its own reasons. But the real winner of a blocked rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia is Iran, um, which of course is a a big enemy of, of Saudi Arabia. And there's increasing reporting, though, this is still very tentative, that Iran may have played some role, either indirect by funding Hamas and providing with weapons and ammunition, or potentially even directly by helping plan this attack. So um, I don't know. Let me let me turn to let me turn to you, Ben. What is your read of the specific kind of broader Middle Eastern dynamics of this?
0: So, Iran is a longtime supporter of Hamas, which is a very interesting thing because Hamas is a is a Sunni Muslim brotherhood organization, and Iran is a Shia organization, a Shia state that uh, actually. Uh, stands against uh, a kind of Sunni establishment in a lot of ways uh, that said they have a tactical and strategic alliance and uh, Hamas is is one of their major uh, um, it's not like Hezbollah but it's a principal vehicle of Iranian uh, it's, a, it's a major Iran is a major supporter that's and and There has been reporting that Iran was operationally involved in the planning. I I am a little bit skeptical of that, to be honest. Actually, I think the Israeli government appears to be a little bit skeptical of that too because they have not made noises about escalating against Iran. And if they thought they had been hit by Iran – they would be fighting Hezbollah right now as well as fighting Hamas. Um, The Israeli uh, response to this, uh, sort of normally Israelis really do not want a two-front war, right? You have a problem in Gaza, you deal with Gaza and you send messages to Hezbollah, don't mess with us right now. And that actually appears to be what the Israelis are doing which suggests to me that they don't actually think that this was an Iranian op. If that proves to be wrong, you're going to have a major, major problem between Israel and Iran. And so what I would say is, look, if you want to know what the Israeli government thinks, wait till they get the Gaza situation under control and then see if they attack Hezbollah or Iran. If they don't... It's because they don't think Iran was behind this. They will never say that because they don't want the Iranians to – they don't want to let the Iranians off the hook for their support of Hamas. But you can tell by their actions whether they believe that Iran is – directly responsible for this in any way. So, you know, see if there are people killed in Tehran. See if there are bombings. See if there are major figures attacked and see if Israel escalates against Hezbollah or if it sits back and just sends messages, do not mess with us.
4: It's also worth noting, uh, literally while we were recording, the New York Times broke a, a story saying that according to U.S. officials, Quote, key Iranian leaders were surprised by the, the Hamas attack. So just adding that to the, the bigger picture.
2: And I personally, I, just to layer on what Ben was saying, I, I think it actually kind of makes sense from Iran's perspective. Like the idea that Iran would trigger something of this scale knowingly is actually, I think, kind of hard to square with its interests for the simple reason that if it would be hard for it to obstruct or at least run, run a serious substantial risk, it will become – take responsibility for this even if it wasn't actually involved or Israel and the United States will choose to do that or other people. That is a factor that may complicate Saudi-Israeli rapprochement, but it doesn't clearly guarantee it to me. I mean it really underscores Iran as a major threat, which is the motivating factor behind that rapprochement. Uh, So in some ways, it actually may facilitate it and Iran is probably much more worried about the quiet levels of facilitation and cooperation between Israel and Saudi Arabia, the military cooperation as opposed to the public politically charged agreement that the Biden administration and other people have been working towards, the latter is something that the two states could pursue even if they were still against Iran, even if there were substantial tension over a Palestinian uh, – handling of a Palestinian response.
0: It's true, although, uh, although the Iranians, you know, the united religious Muslim front on – Matters Israel and Palestine is symbolically very important to the Iranians. And, you know, a formal Saudi deal along the lines of the UAE Bahrain deal is a, is a, a, a real sort of spiritual affront to where they're coming from.
2: Totally agree. I mean they have every reason to oppose this agreement. I'm not arguing to the contrary. It's just the question as to whether this is a way that actually advances that goal. I think is actually – if you were to consciously plan this. Now, things we have to bear in mind, Iran is not a unitary actor. The IRGC does a lot of things that political actors aren't always fully in the loop on. And so it's, that's a possibility that some part of the Iranian government is involved but not – The whole – or the whole running – I'm not going to rule that out. I just think there's reasons why it doesn't make intuitive sense to me. Um, The other possibility as well is that the the dog caught the car possibility. Maybe they thought this was going to be a much more symbolic escher that was going to fail substantially but was still going to be terrifying because of its scope. And yet it succeeded and so they have achieved catastrophic success along with Hamas. I wouldn't rule out either of those possibilities which which make – would square some of the logic to me a little bit more. But, uh, you know, it, it right now is a difficult position. The, the third factor of this I will say is the Hezbollah factor and that is the thing to watch which again we're watching right now as we're seeing Hezbollah, it looks like, fire an array of rockets into northern Israel – pursue drones, pursue maybe some infiltration with gliders. Although, again, all these accounts are still not yet confirmed that I've seen yet. Um, But that is also – Actually more limited than what Hezbollah probably could do, which is a wild array of rockets into northern Israel. Including
0: some very sophisticated ones and, and their numbers are in the tens of thousands. So if you're talking about the onesies, twosies or ten rockets here and there, that's Hezbollah reminding people that it's there, not Hezbollah. And, and there's a very sophisticated communication system between the Israeli military and Hezbollah, you know, the Hezbollah sends three rockets and the Israelis fight – destroy two Hezbollah positions and there's a code to this that both sides kind of understand and, you know, when Hezbollah wants to launch a war on Israel, it looks very different from this.
2: And I would think if Iran wanted to start a war with Israel, which again, that's what this would do if we're involved in planning this, I don't think they would start it with Hamas and then three days later still be dawdling with Hezbollah, if I'm being honest. Like it just doesn't make a lot of strategic sense to me.
0: Look, I am no Iran scholar and it doesn't feel like an Iran thing to me. It feels like a Hamas thing to me and – I don't – if you were Iran trying to do this and you had done that and you had gotten the Gaza op done at that level, why would you be restraining Hezbollah or doing anything other than encouraging Hezbollah to launch with full force now? So look, could I be wrong about this? Absolutely. Am I asserting that I don't – that Iran wasn't involved? Absolutely not. Does it feel like that's the most probable explanation? No.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. so whether you're between jobs coming off a parents' plan or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com that's uh1.com
0: Hey lawfare listeners Ben Wittis here I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
3: So we've talked about Iran. I want to talk about some of the other players in the region. I want to go back back to Saudi Arabia, because I do think this question of Israel's role in the region and the really remarkable progress that Israel has made in normalizing relations with its neighbors has been, I mean, it's been remarkable. And I'm I'm curious. I'll ask you, Scott, if you think that that's just untenable. There's just no way that that will continue, given what is going to happen in Gaza, and that might you might even see a a regression.
2: I think it's going to be very hard to happen. Uh, so long as there's an ongoing military operation in Gaza is my suspicion. I don't I don't. I don't say that with 100 percent confidence by any stretch of the imagination. But look, because any Israeli military operation in Gaza is likely to have major civilian consequences and that is going to be a h- bitter pill to swallow for a lot of the Arab world uh, and for uh, Palestinians more broadly who again in the West Bank and the PA and other folks have walked a careful line and have not exactly jumped in the uh, boat with Hamas on this stuff. Um, but if Israel – pursues an operation that kills thousands of Palestinians in Gaza um, who are civilians and in many ways victims of Hamas themselves, um, that's going to be a really, really big barrier. Is it insurmountable? I, I don't think it is because ultimately a lot of the countries that pursued the Abraham Accords still have a lot of reservations about the Palestinian issue, but they've reconciled themselves with saying we can normalize with Israel or get closer um, without compromising the Palestinian issue or they've just decided it's a lower priority. Saudi Arabia, it's more complicated for a lot of ways. I mean, it's easier for the smaller Gulf countries, Bahrain, UAE, to do this um, before uh, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is the big get um, for Israel in a lot of ways, also because it will be a green light for a lot of other countries to pursue similar levels of um, kind of normalization or in other types of enhanced engagement. But, you know, I, I don't know if it makes it in the medium term, a, a, you know, kills it, as some people might suggest. Um, it depends on. Again, kind of the – how the Israeli reaction plays out um, and what it actually looks like. Uh, and That's a factor that Israel has to take into account. Um, uh, if you push too hard, frankly, you could see the UAE and Bahrain, another country or Jordan or Egypt, begin to push back. I don't think Jordan and Egypt are going to walk back from normalization. But there's a lot of cooperation and re- relationships. We, we know Egypt warned Israel about this attack a few days in advance uh, in general terms that weren't taken seriously at the time, as, uh, at least according to reports you know, those sorts of cooperation could decline in a way that's, that's detrimental. Um, so that's, that's the countervailing factor the Israelis have to take into account among
3: many. So there's lots more about the international aspects of this that we could talk about. But um, since there is uh, already an existing large-scale war going on in Europe, we might as well touch at least briefly on that and in particular talk about Russia's role. You know, at least from sort of the chatter on social media, people seem to want to bring Russia into this conflict in one way or another. It's not entirely clear to me, what Russia's role is, if anything in this, or like what the implications are, why we should be talking about Russia, um, except perhaps to note that Putin's response to uh, these attacks has been notably less Israel-friendly than Putin has traditionally been in, in trying to sort of say nice things about Israel. Um, and this, of course, has implications for Israel's somewhat lackluster uh, defense of Ukraine. I mean, it's quite notable to compare what you know Netanyahu has and has not said about Ukraine to what Zelensky, uh, the kind of full-throated support Zelensky has offered, uh, at least in a in speech to Israel, though, of course, Ukraine has no capabilities of actually doing anything. They have their own issues to deal with. So I, I'm curious, Ben, I mean, do you do you think there's like a Russia angle to this, except that there's a kind of rush angle to the news every day because the war in Ukraine is so important and catastrophic? Uh,
0: yes and no. So – Broadly speaking, is Vladimir Putin behind this? Absolutely not. The attempts on social media to make this about Russia because of Russian connection with Iran or because – it's just silly. Um, Hamas uh, is Hamas and uh, Russia is Russia and there's no meaningful operational connection between the two. The Russia angle is interesting for two reasons. Uh, and by the way, if there were any basis to blame Vladimir Putin, I would blame Vladimir Putin. I, I, you know, he is a... He still uh,
3: refuses to fight you, Ben. I, mean, I, mean, I don't want, he, to he, I don't don't want that to
0: get and, lost. And he's a genocidal maniac and, uh, and... Uh, you know i'm not looking to absolve him of anything but i, I don't think there's a I, meaningful i, I want them to have at least
3: one moment of levity on this on this episode of ratsack yeah um <laughs> uh,
0: there there are two significant russia angles here uh the first is that uh volodymyr zelensky uh the ukrainian president took the opportunity of putin's lackluster statement to give a full-throated statement with a subtext i'm the i'm the jewish president of ukraine and i stand with israel that was the subtext of it and the significance of that is not what ukraine has to offer israel it's what israel has to offer ukraine israel has been uh, notably stingy in its support for ukraine not in a financial sense but in a sharing capabilities observing sanctions it's really been quite neutral um, in a way that is uh, quite infuriating actually um, and I, I think the Ukrainian love bombing of Israel is partly a way of making Israeli – appealing to Israeli popular opinion to embarrass certain politicians, both Netanyahu and his predecessors, uh, Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett. And so – I think that's one significant angle. The second significant angle is the reason for the Israeli reticence about support for Ukraine which has to do with Russian presence in Syria and the degree to which uh, the Israelis need to deconflict with with Russia about very important operations to them in Syria against Hezbollah and against uh, others sometimes. If Israel ends up having to conduct a very substantial operation in, Leba- in, in Lebanon or in the north or uh, against Hezbollah, uh, you're going to see a change in the Israeli-Russian relationship because those, those protocols that they've worked out may not work so well anymore. And that could put Israel in a much more pro-Ukrainian position um, because, you know, preserving that tactical set of understandings and operational set of understandings with the Russians would no longer be a salient thing. Um, and so I think the Ukrainians are playing it very cleverly, which is, you know, to fly Israeli flags and to be uh, – to link the two struggles and hope that the Israelis uh, come into a more conflicting posture with the Russians as a result of activity in the North. The interesting question to me and I really don't know the answer but I would love for some Russia watcher to explain it to me is why Putin has played it so cool. The Israelis have been quite good to him uh, again in a very infuriating fashion and in a fashion that has driven the State Department quite you know there's a lot of anger in Washington about the Israeli response to the Ukraine war and Putin you know Putin's comments Really, just told them to put it where the moon don't shine, and I think that's gonna that's will play very badly in Jerusalem and in the in the in, in Tel Aviv in the in the Kirya with the, the the Pentagon. It's a very interesting question why he is playing it the way he is, and I have no theory about what the answer is, except that he seems to love murder and violence. It has a whole the whole thing has a Beslan character to it.
2: I hundred I, percent I agree, and I only add to that it may not play well in Moscow either because I cannot imagine out oh, of these 1,000-plus killed Israelis, a number of them were not Russian dual nationals given the close ties between the countries,
0: Particularly in Aaron
2: Jr.: Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, when you hear reports of potentially dozens of Russian citizens with dual nationals with family members back home who were murdered so brutally, his positions are going to look particularly callous. Maybe that doesn't matter anymore. Maybe his control of power is that firm. But, you know— I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you see him begin to adjust tack a little bit as those stories come out a little bit more. This may have been a miscalculation on his part in his early comments, of which he's really only made one set of public remarks that I've seen. So, Well, this conflict for our last segment, we want to talk about the fact that this conflict, as we mentioned at the top, of course, bears more than anyone else on Israelis and Palestinians caught in the middle of it and others in the nearby region. as has ramifications around the world but it also has ramifications for here at home – on a number of different fronts because of the US relationship with Israel, because of US security commitments throughout the Middle East, uh, and because of the way this conflict is intersecting with so many areas of activity by the United States and by Americans. I want to get into the real politics of it, but I actually kind of want to start with another issue, which has really manifested itself in this conflict. And Quinta, I want to come to you on that. And that is the degree of misinformation and confusion that's come out around this, that's not unusual for international conflict. I mean, uh, our international crisis, everybody in this conversation has lived through a number of them in the internet age and there's often misinformation. But it seemed particularly bad and particularly sticky at this point where we have really solid pieces of misinformation lingering for days and days um, now in the ecosystem and still being brought up uh, in conversations despite some pretty solid efforts at discrediting them. And a lot of that comes back to honestly, Twitter, probably, uh, and other X. social media platforms, X, uh, as we call it today. Q, what has been your experience in watching this as somebody who thinks about these issues so much? And, and what does this tell us about the state of our information ecosystem at this global scale uh, uh, we're seeing from this conflict?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think this is why all the conversations about Twitter mattered, right? You know, there's certainly a little bit of, you know, people are interested in the things they're interested in, and they like talking about it, but... This is why we were concerned when Musk sort of started dismantling the platform's architecture. So as you say, there's been a lot of falsehoods uh, flying around. It's been difficult to verify information. It's quite hard to figure out what's going on. It's also worth noting that there are a lot of really violent videos on Twitter that are not being taken down. Um, And I actually stopped using the platform to get information and just switched over to live vlogs because I, while I was scrolling, saw videos of dead bodies. And that is not something that you should have to see while you're looking through a platform. There is a really striking article uh, in the New York Times about how Hamas is sort of using this as part of its strategy to, as part of, you know, propaganda efforts to spread fear both in spreading falsehoods, but, you know, in in distributing images and videos of atrocities. Um, and there's a really striking quote or at, at the end with an anonymous Hamas official who sort of, as the Times put it, draws a comparison between the strategies that ISIS used um, around 2015 on the platforms and that he felt that, you know, that – It's the quote from The Times is, well, he stopped short of saying Hamas was following a playbook laid out by ISIS. He called its social media strategy successful. Um, And I think that's really notable uh, in part because, you know, that surge of ISIS propaganda, just horrific, horrific videos that came out in around 2015 was what kind of pushed platforms to begin serious moderation efforts to begin with. Um, And so in that sense, I think we've sort of unfortunately come full circle.
2: And it's worth noting, I mean, a lot of the more horrific stories that we hear coming out of which it's worth noting, there's no doubt horrific things happen or committed by Hamas. um, But some of the ones that have gotten the most media pickup have been debunked in substantial ways or at least problematized, heavily questioned. Um, You know, there's a horrible photo of children in chicken coops and cages that circulate on social media that I believe people with Snopes and a few other investigators have said – Like, no, this video actually predates the conflict was posted on the internet several days before the internet. Um, And that's happened in a lot of these cases. That's not unusual. Again, you know, I think back to um, like the Turkish coup attempt in 2015, 2016, or the Kurdish war in 2017, things that I really, in part because there wasn't as much Western English language media following it, I really turned to Twitter for. And you got a lot of these false stories. But there was such an active ecosystem, both official and a lot of it unofficial, just because there are so many people on. Twitter proactively checking each other. I just don't see that this time. I don't know whether it's because it's so balkanized across different platforms. Maybe I need to be on, look at Blue Sky or Post or other things more. Um, but it, it's been a real persistent problem uh, more than I expected on this.
0: Yeah, and, and I think one of the other problems is that the material doesn't get taken down. And, yeah. you know, there's all, all information services that are open to the masses, right, and that are not staffed by professionals who feed information to it are, uh, are going to have a certain amount of misinformation on them. Uh, the back-end protection, what happens when you find out that the X video is nonsense becomes essential to this and, and Musk you know, has been true to his word that he believes that you know, information that is not illegal to say should be – except my Twitter feed of course, um, <laughs> which uh, there's nothing illegal about impersonating the Russian embassy and yet he threw me off. Um, but, uh, you know, by and large, he, he does seem to believe that people lying and about material or mistakenly sharing material that is, uh, you know, grotesque, highly violent and false is fine and uh, so the result is, you know, in I think a good development, a huge number of people left Twitter this weekend. Um, my, My Threads account seemed to be suddenly active with new Twitter evacuees and so the, the the platform itself does seem to be dying. Uh, that said, it played a particularly malevolent role in this episode.
2: So let me turn from the platform to some of the broader dialogue that we're seeing on those platforms but elsewhere as well because we've seen, I think, in the US political system kind of a range of reactions but, but a couple of very strong ones. You've seen a lot of uh, I think so kind of self-congratulatory – not congratulatory. That's not quite right. But views on on people particularly on the political right saying this is all Iran. This is predictable consequence of appeasement. Appeasement has been thrown about a lot particularly by proxies of the former Trump administration and its foreign policy kind of operation. I think Pompeo uh, may have used used appeasement. and It's kind of echoed out from there in his reaction to this. And on the left, you've seen a lot of range reactions, but there's at least a part of the left, as particularly, uh, you know, portions that have been highly sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, that we've seen a little bit of a dismissive reaction, not dismissive, again, I don't think it's quite fair, but a reaction framing this as saying this is a, a result of decolonization, uh, reflects the sort of uh, inevitability of the reaction to Israeli policy. Alan, I, I know you've been wrestling with this and have had some thoughts about this, what do you think about this political discourse that's come around this conflict, particularly in the United States? What does it tell us a little bit about the reactions to the developments?
3: Yeah, well, so I mean, I'll I'll talk about the, the left part of it, because that's what I've been thinking most about. And I know Ben has very interesting thoughts about the right. Obviously, there's no such thing as the left. It's not a monolith. And even on the sort of more extreme or radical or progressive, however you want to call it, lots of people think different things. Some people have come out very strongly condemning the Hamas attack. Some people have done the, it's bad, but, and then there's, you know, seven seven tweets trying to contextualize it, which, you know, you can argue whether that's in good or bad taste after uh, atrocity of this magnitude. But there's actually another part that's substantially worse than even that. I mean, Scott, you said, you know, um, you said people, some people are dismissing and you said, well, that's not quite fair. And it's true that some people aren't dismissing it some people are dismissing it some people are actively encouraging it and they're actively delighted about it I think it's important not primarily because of you know who says what on Twitter right it's Twitter is sort of the worst of all of us but I do think it you know we may look back at this several years from now as a moment of profound political realignment on the left and the reason is I think as follows so if you'll if you'll pardon me a you know a, a brief minute on sort of what my theory of the left in the United States is. Which is that, you know, simplifying wildly, you have the center left, kind of boring, normie, Obama Democrat. I will identify myself uh, falling there. And then you have the more extreme, radical, progressive left, however you want to call it. And for the last five years or so, the center left has largely deferred on kind of moral grounds to the progressive wing of the left. That didn't mean that, you know, they didn't agree with everything and um, obviously, you could sort of criticize, um, you know, what some people thought of excesses, right? You could say, well, we agree that police violence is terrible, but you know, we don't think that abolition is the way, or you know, we think that uh, there's a lot of in- economic inequality, but we don't think socialism is the way. But the general idea was that these views needed to be least considered and treated somewhat respectfully, because whatever disagreements there were about means, one could argue that these people's hearts were in the right place, right? And I think what you have seen in the last couple of days is not just from some of the grassroots, but from some high-level organizations, the New York Democratic Socialists of America, the Black Lives Matter of Chicago, posting truly horrifying things. Not, this is bad what Hamas did, but, but, for example, posting an image of a paratrooper uh, militant You know, flying down with a Palestinian flag, right? Glorifying in this violence. And I do think that, you know, this just shows that in some parts of the left, there is profound moral bankruptcy. There's just no way of getting around that. Um, If your political values are such that you cannot bring yourself to condemn what Hamas did, then maybe you're not on the same team, right? As the rest of us, as it were. And I think that this will have very serious long-term consequences on the left. Um, Because I think what sort of the more progressive or radical elements did not realize was that the center left can get righteously angry just as much as they can. And it's that moral authority that they have had that has been the source of almost all of their power in more moderate left circles. And I think that's gone right now. And I, I, I cannot emphasize enough how much of a break I think this will cause between many in the center and many sort of on the more extreme, right? I I have been angrier for the last four days than I have in an exceptionally long time. And this is something that I and I think many people who think like me will never forgive. And again, to be clear, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. It doesn't mean every single person who's part of Black Lives Matter or Democratic Socialist of America or, you know, proponent of decolonization (laughs) believes this. Obviously, they don't. But the fact that enough do Shows that what many on the right and the center right have realized about the extremes of their party applies equally on the left and the extremes of the left party that there is profound moral rot on the extremes, and it's not obvious to me that it's better on the left than it is on the right anymore, and that's a real change
4: so I will say to begin with because Alan I'm going to go on to agree with you I'll start by disagreeing just to you know return everyone to the place that where they're comfortable and say that I think I disagree with almost everything that you said about the broader scope of the relationship between the left and the center left. So putting that to the side, um, look, no, I mean, the the conversations on social media have been unbelievably repulsive and horrible. Like, no one hates the left more than the left. Uh, but I, I was shocked by a lot of the stuff that I saw, um, and particularly in the way that people kept doubling down. I think that, frankly, a lot of people... Liked to posture and thought that this was, you know, going to be Hamas runs in, shoots some innocent people, runs back um, and that it was not going to be on the scale of horror that it was. And then kind of trapped themselves in that position and kept posturing, which is horrifying and I think speaks to a real lack of seriousness in thinking about the conflict, you know, that it's not it's not real um that these aren't real people who died that they're not real people who are going to die and that i completely agree that that's repulsive and speaks to a deep deep moral emptiness i hope that this is not representative of the left as a whole i mean i will say the dsa has long had problems with its international approach to international affairs I will say the person who I know who is on the left and is the most angry about how the left has handled this is a Marxist and would describe himself as such. So it's certainly it's not shared by everyone. And there are a lot of people who are horrified by this response. I do think that the scale of the glee and the willingness of a lot of people to hand wave horrific Civilian casualties, including, by the way, like professors who are saying that about people who could be the families of their students, which I find really awful is deeply yeah,
3: deep I, I look forward to all the dei uh, the <laughs> DEI bureaucracy um, uh, pointing out right um, in a way that I'm sure won't happen that you know maybe maybe uh, maybe words maybe words can be violence in this case
4: well right I mean but this is the thing right if you argue that everything is violence then you end up arguing that violence is not violence um, and I say that as someone who is deeply 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 concerned about what's going to happen in Gaza and the civilian casualties there but I do think that any any politically relevant left is going to have to take seriously civilian casualties on both sides. And I agree that we did not see that and that the absence of that care came through in the most horrific of ways.
0: I would just very briefly feel that this, I was remiss if I didn't mention that. And I agree 100% with everything that you both have said to the extent that you disagree <laughs> on the spiritual on the spiritual relationship between the left and the center left I'll leave that for another day <laughs> I, I agree with the substance of entirely with but bo- what both of you are saying I would think I it was remiss of me if I didn't mention that while we're talking here about relatively fringe elements of the left which is to say uh, you know, uh, a, a relatively small, you know, student groups, a relatively small protest in New York, which was, by the way, vile. And you know, groups like DSA, by the way, founded by a great man, Mark uh, Michael Harrington, stood for anti-Stalinist, anti-commun, non not communist, democratic socialism, could represent a. Uh, could champion a a thing like this, is just amazing. That said, none of them are the chairman of the DNC and the chairman of the Republican Party went on national television on Sunday and described this as a great opportunity for Republicans Uh, and uh, Tim Scott, the presidential candidate and senator, you know, the, the shortest – there's an Israeli joke that the shortest measurable unit of time is the time between the – when the light turns green in front of you and when the Israeli in back of you honks. Actually, the shortest measurable unit of time in, in, in reality is the time between when – you know, a thousand Jews get murdered and when Tim Scott goes on television to or or uh, tweets to blame Joe Biden for it as though he was secretly authorizing a Hamas attack. So I, I just want to say that there's – yes, there is a huge problem on the left, by the way, pervasively in the academy, in all kinds of um, – so I'm not diminishing that. I am saying – The response of the mainstream of the Republican Party was appalling.
2: Well, let's turn to that for our last bit of conversation here because there's a big political nexus here um, where you have the Republican Party very clearly trying to pressure the Biden administration and criticize it, tie this event to a general rapprochement with Iran, which is worth noting the Biden administration has pursued far less – with far less interest or really even much effort as far as I can tell um, than certainly the Obama administration has. But nonetheless, painting their policy with that brush, particularly in light of the prisoner exchange about a week or two ago that entailed a payout to Iran. Payout is not quite right. A liberation of frozen funds that's to be used for humanitarian purposes. And that hasn't been spent down uh, according to White House officials uh, that I've seen quoted. But regardless, there's a clear political effort there. And then on the Biden administration side, you've seen a really strong statement of support come out, most notably including not just the Biden administration but Germany, France, United Kingdom, um, representing the, you know a, an important block of the European Union or Europe in more generally, I should say, and that is significant because those are countries that have often been much more critical of Israeli military activities, um, but here have come out in support of a Israeli military response or Israeli right to self-defense. At the same time, we have also heard reports of the Biden administration talking to the uh, Israeli leadership, particularly Biden to Netanyahu, saying you have to think about civilian casualties. Um, This has been not part of the official communique, but that's not – unusual. Uh, the Biden administration in particular very much tried to put a very rosy front on us relations, Israeli, and then we hear about communications that happen unofficially through reporting um, and I do believe they are happening uh, from people I know who work in the administration. I think they take these issues very seriously um, and these points of tension with the Israelis and they are still being pursued through diplomatic channels just not on the front pages because they think that's more effective. I, I guess, Ben, I'll start with you on this but Quinta and Alan, I definitely want to hear from you as well. Uh, you know, how does the Biden administration navigate this? Like, what are its pressure points? How far does it go? And then, you know, at what point is it going to find that the position carved out in that, you know, letter with European states might encounter some tension? Is there a point where it separates it from Israel or where it begins to put some constraints Israel doesn't like? Um, Or is that just too far down the road to really think about at this point?
0: Well, I think that the Israelis have a lot of running room for the short term. Everybody expects them to be targeting Hamas. They appear to be targeting Hamas. There are a lot of civilians who are getting killed in the course of targeting Hamas. But I think as long as they're targeting Hamas, we are not going to see a major rupture even with the European countries honestly. I, I think there's there's just a uh, – there's an, an almost universal understanding that a state has to make it impossible for something like this to happen and that there are going to be costs associated with this. Where the Israelis are going to run into trouble is if they cannot justify – Attacks with major civilian consequences, with hey, there was a bank of weapons in there and we had to take it out because they were about to move it out. Or, God forbid, you know, the thing that ended the US Israeli locked shoulder uh, embrace in in the Lebanon War was the Sabra and Shatila massacre, right? Which was of course not conducted by Israeli forces but was Mm -hmm. done by a Christian Lebanese force that the Israelis kind of led into the camp and and that was understood to be even by the Israeli commission that investigated it, that that Ariel Sharon, the defense minister – of course later as prime minister evacuated Israeli forces from Gaza, so right, um, was indirectly responsible for. Uh, These are the kinds of things that will really, really make it difficult. And then I think the other key thing for the Israelis, which I've just seen no sign of, is a sense of what the what the horizon is. Okay, so you go street to street fighting, and you get rid of Hamas in the to, in in the sense that Alan means, or in the sense that you know that I mean, sort of as a governing force, and and then you have to reoccupy Gaza in order to do it, and then what? Right, is the goal is the horizon then to stay there and sort of revert? And now we're back to pre-Oslo. You know, is the horizon to invite the PA in um, to – actually, which should be the governing authority there. But then you have this degraded, decrepit PA that can't even really function in Ramallah. Are you going to – how is it going to govern Gaza? Is the is – the, or is the horizon, as I fear, to just leave? and try to rebuild that perimeter defense, maybe this time in a more effective fashion, and leave what's already one of the poorest places in the world in that's suffered incredible infrastructure damage now from this set of attacks with a huge power vacuum. And so I think the way Israel needs to be able to articulate a political, a, 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 not a political horizon in the sense of satisfying Palestinian national aspirations. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about what is the political horizon, the, the, for after you've done whatever you're going to do. What's, what happens three months from now? And, you know, one Netanyahu is a man of incredible skills and, you know, his, his detractors often miss how talented he is at many things he has also many amazing vices as a human being and as a as a leader and the one that never gets enough attention is that he has no foresight at all he's a really really talented tactician and political operator and he 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 has a remarkable set of skills that there's but he never articulates a political vision of what the horizon looks like and this is a situation where that is desperately needed we need to know uh, israelis need to know and and europeans and americans need to know because the next few weeks are going to be very ugly and you do actually need to know that it is not simply a retributive exercise, but that there is a that there is a, a plan or an idea. And and here I say this in sympathy with Netanyahu, not in criticism. I have no idea what the horizon should look like. It's an it's one of those I think the technical term is fucking impossible problems. There is one person um, from the Israeli side who has thought about this more deeply than everybody else combined about the the horizon for alleviating suffering in Gaza. And it is the ambassador to Washington, Mr. Herzog, Ambassador Herzog, who is the brother of the president. And I hope that Netanyahu or Benny Gantz or, you know, picks up the phone and has a serious conversation with Ambassador Herzog.
4: I think the kind of additional complication here for the Biden administration, at least thinking purely just in domestic political terms, is that the Democratic Party has been moving away from sort of default support for Israel. There's been a lot of interesting stuff written about how, you know. However you want to define, quote unquote, support for Israel, putting that kind of slogan on the table has become something that's increasingly partisan in the United States in recent years as the Israeli government has moved right and recently lurched extremely sharply to the right. um, And so I think there's – I don't have the statistics on hand, but I know there's – if you look at the numbers – Democrats, including Jewish Democrats, um, have sort of substantially changed their view of what U.S. policies toward Israel should be. Well, arguably because of some of the same policies by the Israeli government that contributed to what led to this awful situation in the first place, which I do think means that Biden is sort of in a more difficult domestic political spot than he might have been had the Democratic Party been full-throatedly behind, you know, whatever BB needs, we'll give it. And as I've kind of hinted, I think that that is because of a lot of the same factors that, you know, created this broader situation. Um, So I I don't think those are really extricable particularly, but it does strike me that it means that there's a thinner tightrope to walk.
2: I 100% agree with that. Um, and particularly the democratic shift, which is very real and the increasingly partisan nature of the U.S.-Israel relationship, which is a problem. But I think it's more of a medium-term than a short-term problem or even a even a short-to-medium-term problem for the simple reason that it, from the Israeli perspective, if you look at U.S. domestic politics, it's, you have actually have an almost perfect alignment for things to say this is a strong U.S. support for Israel. Biden himself is leans much more pro-Israel than the De- general Democratic Party. He's clearly the nominee leading into an election year. This is an issue where Democrats are going to feel vulnerable in a national election that's going to center on a lot of national security and foreign policy questions where they already feel vulnerable uh, on, on other issues, Afghanistan things along those lines. You have Republicans that are bought strongly bought in, supportive of Israel, except for perhaps the most isolationist camp. Democrats generally in the mainstream are going to feel very much the same way in spite of reservations about broader Israeli policies. So I would say you have a very, very strong possibility that the United States and the Biden administration is going to lean very heavily towards backing Israel. They'll they'll have complaints, they'll have reservations, they'll communicate those privately. Uh, And I will say also. There's a little bit of a trump card right here in that there are these US nationals that are being held hostage, which the United States and the Biden administration is going to take a direct interest in. I would not be surprised because you're talking about a very complex environment that's going to stretch even Israeli military capabilities if you even see direct US military involvement, um, if there's an opportunity to rescue some of them. Um, because. That's something the United States can do effectively. The real question there is whether the Israelis want to complicate their operational picture by al- allowing the United States to do that. But um, that's an area where there are going to be a strong incentive for cooperation in the in more immediate near term until that situation is resolved. Hopefully for the better. Tragically it might be for the worse at some point. Um, or there might be a point where they just don't have any operational possibility on the horizon for, for addressing it and hopefully rescuing them. The one countervailing factor here though actually goes back to our international conversation I think and that's Ukraine. Because this actually is a hard issue for Biden on Ukraine. Because the Palestine issue for a lot of the world is a super sensitive issue. And when you are in the United States and with Europe backing a very strong Israeli military reaction uh, in the Gaza Strip, I think that's going to become a hard sell with a lot of the audiences that the Biden administration has very consciously been trying to get on board. With supporting Ukraine and continuing sanctions against Russia and otherwise pressuring Russia, I'm talking about kind of the Africa bloc and the developing world bloc in the United Nations primarily, uh, a lot of other countries, India, not so much. India is one where more pro-Israel than just by any other country probably except for maybe the United States. Um, but other than that, a lot of the other countries in the kind of traditional non-aligned movement are really – this is going to trigger a lot of alarm bells for them and it feeds into Russian and Chinese rhetoric around this.
0: On the other hand, though, in terms of getting the Ukraine supplemental through Congress, it, it cuts exactly the opposite direction, which is, you know, Republicans trip over themselves to give money to Israel, and if you just connect those two things, this will or could solve their Ukraine funding problem.
2: I totally agree, and that's that's a big plus on this. Um, but it's more about the global signaling about what how you manage those two signals and this particularly sensitive audience um, who's interested in this issue. So I think that's going to be a challenge for the Biden administration, but, uh, you know, down the road a little bit. Well, folks, that unfortunately brings us to the end of this week's episode. We are going to skip object lessons. Except
0: I have an emergency object lesson, which is uh, on the Lawfare podcast feed, if you have not already done so. uh, We have two really terrific conversations one a conversation that Scott hosted yesterday with uh me and uh my uh, our colleague Nathan Sachs uh and Dan Byman and uh Raith Alomari it's a it's a really good live uh recorded podcast and the other one uh which uh, is very special to me uh Noah Efron, who is the host of the Promised Podcast and a prolific writer and uh, Israeli essayist and uh, uh, historian of science uh, joined me yesterday uh, from uh, Israel in a conversation twice interrupted by incoming missiles. Uh, Noah is a fountain of wisdom and is really – that conversation is really worth your time.
2: Yeah, I'll second that. I think those are both must-listens as you're digging this and frankly, we're going to have a lot more content and conversation and podcasts on Lawfare uh, to come, so stay tuned. But until then, bear in mind that Rational Security is of course a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work for other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series. You can follow us on Twitter, slash X, at security. be sure to leave a rating or review where you might be listening. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. We will be back to the more lighthearted, levity-imbued conversations in the future while we'll still be dealing with very serious topics. Um, But we hope you found this conversation today uh, while a little more sober, uh, insightful, and useful as you wrestle with these events of the past week just as we have our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we were once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howe, on behalf of my co-host Alan Quinta, and our special guest, Benjamin Wittis, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.